Lord, we give you thanks for um, so many kids being able to go out uh, with uh, their leaders and their teachers this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray for both groups, for those who teach and those who will learn this morning. And we pray that their uh, special Sunday school this morning will be a real blessing, a real fruitful time of learning and fellowship for them uh, this morning. Lord, be with uh, Rachel as she reads the word to us. Be with us as our hearts become receptive for your word this morning. Be with Carl as he will, uh, uh, following the reading, just uh, come up to share with us this morning's sermon. We look forward, Lord, what you have to say to us. So speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Rachel, thank you. The sin offering. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it to the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the fat from the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys, just as the fat is removed from the ox sacrificed as a fellowship offering. Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all of its flesh, as well as the head and legs, the inner parts and offal, that is, all the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean where the ashes are thrown and burnt in a wood fire on the ash heap. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. When they become aware of the sin they committed, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord and the bull should be slaughtered before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the bull's blood into the tent of meeting. He shall dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle it before the Lord seven times in front of the curtain. He is to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the fat from it and burn it on the altar and do with this bull just as he did with the bull for the sin offering. In this way the priest will make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Then he shall take the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. This is a sin offering for the community. When a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering a male goat without defect. He is to lay his hands on the goat's head and slaughter it at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered before the Lord. 
it is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He shall burn all the fat on the altar as he burned the fat of the fellowship offering. In this way the priest will make atonement for the man's sin and he will be forgiven. If a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat without defect. He is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest is to... Then the priest is to take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In this way the priest will make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he is to bring a female without defect. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it, for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it, burn it on the altar on top of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. In this way the priest will make atonement for him for the sin he has committed and he will be forgiven." If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. Or if a person touches anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcasses of unclean wild animals or of unclean livestock or of unclean creatures that move along the ground, even though he's unaware of it, he has become unclean and is guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanliness, anything that would make him unclean, even though he is unaware of it, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. Or if a person thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though he is unaware of it, in any case when he learns of it, he will be guilty. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned, and as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. If he cannot afford a lamb, he is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for his sin, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He is to bring them to the priest who shall first offer the one for the sin offering. He is to wring its head from its neck, not severing it completely, and is to sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering against the side of the altar. The rest of the blood must be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The priest shall then offer the other as a burnt offering in the prescribed way and make atonement for him for the sin he has committed and he will be forgiven. If, however, he cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, he is to bring as an offering for his sin a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He must not put oil or incense on it because it is a sin offering. He is to bring it to the priest who shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar on top of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. It is a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for any of these sins he has committed, and he will be forgiven. The rest of the offering will belong to the priest, as in the case of the grain offering. 
Well, it's a little bit of a marathon, isn't it, the, uh, the sin offering? Uh, it's probably the longest uh, of the ones that we've looked at so far. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, that doesn't mean the sermon will be uh, four times as long uh, as uh, in the past weeks. Uh, if you're joining uh, us for the first time this morning uh, and you haven't been here for any of the, uh, the other uh, series of sermons from the series on Leviticus, uh, then welcome uh, and let me kind of just give you a little bit of a, a background about Leviticus uh, and say that this is probably one of the, the least uh, studied books in the Old Testament uh, but it was a, a book given by God to people uh, as a way, as kind of a, a visual message uh, of why we need Jesus. Uh, and so uh, today, in this day and age, even though we don't uh, slaughter bulls and wring the necks of, uh, of doves, uh, it, it, it helps us to understand, I guess, why we need Jesus. And hopefully we'll see that again this morning. Well, today we're, uh, we're obviously looking at the sin offering uh, and so we're going to be thinking about sin. Uh, and we're going to be thinking about rebellion against God. We're going to be thinking about uh, f- uh, falling short of what God expects of us, which sounds uh, a little bit negative, I suppose, to think about sin. Uh, and it is, but it's important. Uh, and it's important to remember that the other side of the sin offering is, uh, is not just sin, but the other side of the sin offering is God's message that he wants to and is able to do something about uh, our sin. He's able to do something about the damaged relationship uh, that we have with him uh, and about uh, our ongoing acts which damage our relationship with him. Well, one of the things which strikes you as you read through Leviticus, if you start at chapter 1 uh, and then you hit chapter 4, uh, is that this is the first time that people are actually commanded to bring an offering. So in the first uh, three chapters, the offerings are just sort of brought because people uh, want to bring them. They're free will offerings, if you like. Uh, there's no particular reason or obligation, I suppose, uh, on the people to bring them. It's left up to them. But in, with the sin offering, this is the first time that an offering is to be brought in response to a specific sin. Uh, here are the opening words of the chapter. When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he must bring a sin offering. In many ways, uh, the sin offering was designed then to confront people about the reality of sin. It was designed to confront people about the reality of sin and I think it did that in two ways. There are two sort of main things which it tells us about sin. First, it shows us that sin affects every area and every level of society. Uh, You probably noticed as we read through that the chapter was divided into sections uh, speaking to different people. In the past, in the other offerings, uh, the offerings were divided up into sort of different animals. You know, there was the the animal from the the herd, from the flock, there was grain. Uh, But this is the first time that the offering is based, uh, grouped around people there was a, the sin offering made provisions for the high priest, the most important religious person uh, in Israel. It made provisions for the whole community. It made provisions for the leaders of the community and it made provisions for every single individual in the community. What was the point of all that? What's the point of going through all these different groups? The point is, I think, to show that there is no person, no area of society which is immune from this problem of sin. It goes from the individual to the high priest. And it's not just an individual problem, it's a corporate problem. 
It's a problem which affects an entire community. Forty years ago, uh, Stanford University uh, conducted a famous psychological experiment. Uh, You might have heard of it. Uh, What they did was is they set up a fake jail and they enlisted uh, fake uh, prison officers and fake prisoners. Uh, And the experiment was supposed to last for two weeks but after six days it had to be called off because the prison guards had started to uh, violently mistreat uh, the people and a number of the prisoners who were there had begun to uh, suffer breakdowns uh, and had to be relieved from the experiment. The experiment became famous because it shocked people. It shocked people because it showed what ordinary people were actually capable of. Ordinary uh, people who were not in their ordinary lives, uh, you know, didn't appear to be full of malice and and and. Uh, you know, venomousness and all kinds of things like that, ordinary people became violent, malicious, uh, oppressive prison guards. These are the sobering words of the man who headed the experiment, Professor Zimbardo. Uh, This is what he said it taught us. It tells us that human nature is not totally under the control of what we like to think of as free will but that the majority of us can be seduced into behaving in ways totally atypical of what we believe we are. Let me me read that again. The experiment revealed that human nature is not totally under the control of what we like to think of as free will, but that the majority of us can be seduced into behaving in ways totally atypical of what we believe we are. In other words... Professor Zimbardo is saying, deep down, people are not what they really think they are and can be seduced into all kinds of evil uh, and wickedness. In the words of the Bible, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? And you only have to take a look, don't you, at the world around you to know how true that really is. Whether it's rioting and looting, uh, taking over cities in England and embroiling uh, people who are not just run-of-the-mill thugs but but ordinary good people got caught up in the looting and the rioting as well. Whether it's members of parliament rorting travel expenses, whether it's uh, AFL footballers uh, involved in another another sex scandal or or another racial slur, whether it's uh, a high-profile businessman who uh, dupes the shareholders and, and, and runs away to another country whether it's a Supreme Court judge lying under oath to protect himself from a drink-driving charge, it doesn't matter how good your job is, it doesn't matter how good your family is, it doesn't matter how good your education has been, the problem of sin stretches from the lowest level of society to the highest reaches. What's more, sin offering, the sin offering, the descriptions given, the, the reasons that it had to be brought it showed that it wasn't just an individual problem but that it was a community problem. The high priest, uh, it says, could bring guilt on all the people by by his sin. So too the the community could be guilty of of one sin or another together. That is, God's stance towards people can be affected by the way that we act as a people. Think of what happened in Nazi Germany. 
ordinary people became enthusiastic advocates of genocide and wholesale destruction of an entire race. An entire community convinced themselves that that was right. Sin isn't just a problem which affects every individual. Sin is a problem which affects every area of life, every organisation of society, every gathering of people. The sin offering reminds us first and foremost, I think, of the tremendous, oppressive problem of sin which separates us from God. But the sin uh, offering pushes even deeper into the realities of sin and tells us something else about the nature of sin. Uh, I don't know if this word struck you as we read through, but there's the word unintentional. Uh, This chapter speaks about unintentional sin, although a, a better translation is probably inadvertent that is, sins committed uh, by mistake or out of ignorance. The beginning of chapter 5 lists a few examples of what that might look like. Uh, it might have included a person who had evidence, uh, evidence for a criminal trial and they didn't speak up. It might have included a person who touched uh, or came into contact with uncleanness. So God had said certain things were unclean, that was a picture of, of things, but we'll come to that in a few, few more weeks. But God said, look, there are things I want you to view as unclean and if you come into contact with any of those things then that's, uh, that's a sin. Uh, it might have been a, a person who made a hasty promise. All these ways are ways which someone could have uh, sinned unintentionally, said something that they didn't realise they were saying, uh, touched something, came into contact with something that they didn't realise was wrong. But the point of, of the sin offering targeting unintentional sins is to say that whether you, are, whether you mean it or not, whether you're uh, disobeying God intentionally with, with your volition, with your will, it doesn't matter, God still sees you as guilty. The sin offering was designed to teach people that breaking God's commands by accident is still a sin against God, whether you mean to do it or not. The, the same principle still holds in legal matters today, doesn't it? Uh, it doesn't matter if you're ignorant of the law, Uh, you're still considered guilty if you break it. A a classic example is copyright infringement. Uh, Nobody knows the ins and outs uh, of copyright infringement. Uh, It's it's enormous. In fact, up until about six years ago to to rip a CD to turn into an MP3 was actually against the law, even though uh, MP3 players were uh, were sold in shops uh, far and wide. But if you infringe on on copyright, if you photocopy too much of a book, uh, even though you you don't know, you're still held accountable. You're still guilty of a crime, even if you don't know the ins and outs uh, of copyright legislation. In the same way, God holds all of us accountable for things we do, even inadvertently, even by mistake. That was the message of the sin offering was that God holds us accountable for inadvertent sins. But I think the word inadvertent tells us something else as well. Uh, it, would have, it would have made people realise, I think, as they read the sin, through the sin offering, as they saw it uh, being undertaken by people, I think it would have made them realise that their problem is so much bigger, their problem with sin is so much bigger than just inadvertent sin, isn't it? Imagine for instance, that this church was a temple 
uh, and that there were still sin offerings that had to be made and uh, there were priests here every day who would, uh, who would offer sacrifices. Just imagine that every time you committed a sin inadvertently, you had to uh, drive down here uh, and bring your animal with you and uh, put your head on the, on, uh, hand on the head of the animal, slaughter the animal uh, for your inadvertent sin. Well, you can forget about coming to church just once a week because you'd probably be here uh, every day, wouldn't you? Because every day there'd be inadvertent sins which came to your attention which you had to deal with. But imagine that you sinned in some way deliberately. What would you do? Well, the sin offering was there for inadvertent sin so you couldn't bring that. Imagine that you were someone like David. You committed adultery and you had the husband killed. What would you do? Imagine you're like the people of Israel who just after all these things were set up, all these ceremonies and rituals were set up. Imagine that you were like them and you built an idol in your house and started bowing down and worshipping that. What would you have done? because the sin offering was only for inadvertent sins. What message would the sin offering have communicated to people? What message does it communicate to us? I think it taught them and it teaches us that our problem with sin is so much greater than what bulls and goats and sheep and handfuls of flour is able to deal with. No, we're guilty not just of inadvertent sins but of deliberate ones as well. How can we be forgiven for that? No wonder David prayed in Psalm 19, forgive my hidden faults, my inadvertent sins, my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. The sin offering reminds us not just that sin affects all of us, but that our, our problem with sin involves accidents and ignorance and also deliberate rebellion against God. And yet, as much as the sin offering, like all the offerings, is a picture of a problem, it's also a message of grace. Even if you uh, picked up nothing else from this chapter, you probably noticed the repeated phrase, and he will be forgiven. Time and again those words come back at the end of the offering, and he will be forgiven. The sin offering, like all the offerings, promised Forgiveness, forgiveness through a substitute. We've been through a lot of the symbolism in the past weeks and so I'm not going to go over all that again except to say that like with the other blood offerings, the person was to bring this offering to lay their hands on the head of the animal as a way of saying to God, God, I know that in order for you to forgive me there needs to be a death. And then the person would slit the animal's throat and the blood would be poured out on the altar as a picture of what it takes to soothe soothe God's anger against sin. Time and again, the people would have been reminded, wouldn't they? If they had to do this every day, they would have been reminded not just of the problem of sin, but of the promise of forgiveness. And of course, for them and us, the real substitute Uh, isn't a bull or or a goat or an ox or a handful of flour. The real substitute for people who believe is Jesus Christ. 
They could, uh, these animals could never absorb God's wrath against sin. They could never absorb God's wrath against humanity and people. Only the flesh and blood Son of God could do that when he died on the cross. Only Jesus could put away God's wrath against sin. But what's amazing about Jesus' death is not just that it puts away God's wrath against inadvertent sins, but that it puts away God's wrath against deliberate sins as well. This is what Paul says when he's preaching the gospel in the book of Acts. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. That is... Jesus is able to bring forgiveness for things for which the law couldn't bring forgiveness. Turn with me to, this is is amazing. I I just think this is the most astounding thing. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 59. Now this is uh, just a wonderful, already in the Old Testament, God was giving people this message uh, about his ability uh, to save. Isaiah 59 Isaiah 59 and verse 12. This is is the problem that the people face, the people face. This is the problem that we face. For our offences are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fermenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived, so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and everyone who shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. What are they going to do? They haven't just committed inadvertent sins, they've rebelled against God, they've fermented oppression and revolt against God. Look at verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Isn't that wonderful? Fermenting oppression, revolt against the God of heaven and earth and the Redeemer will come from Zion. Jesus has made a better sacrifice for sins than the sin offering was able to make. Jesus' death atones not just for inadvertent sins but puts away wrath, the wrath of God for our rebellion uh, and our uh, rejection of him. And yet, as much as Jesus' uh, offering for sin supersedes the sin offering, there's one thing, there's one kind of message, I guess, of the sin offering which it doesn't supersede. These people needed to hear the message of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness, every day. God made the sin offering, a picture of forgiveness, central to their lives. And even though we don't need to offer bulls and goats and all those kinds of things, we still need to keep coming back again and again to the message of forgiveness. I wonder if it's ever struck you as particularly odd that as Christians we keep preaching the same message week after week. It certainly strikes you after you've been preaching for a while that week after week there's really a very similar theme. Why is that? It's because the biggest obstacle in our lives is sin. And the thing that we most need to be reminded of 
is the good news about Jesus, the good news about forgiveness through Jesus' blood. This is what the Apostle Peter wrote in one of his letters to the early church. I will always remind you of these things even though you already know them and are firmly established in the truth. You know it, you're firmly established in it, but I'm going to remind you. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel time and time again. We know that in the area of relationships, don't we? That we need to be reminded of the truth about relationships. Relationships, uh, maybe it's just me, but relationships seem to be susceptible to great tidal waves of irrationality, don't they? And I think that's best exemplified by the text message. Uh, I know that you've had one of those text messages where, so, where someone sends you this you know, short 156 you know, character message and uh, it's as innocent as anything but, but after a while you sort, of, you sort of read it a second and a third time and, uh, and you know, what seemed on the face of it to be an innocent message you begin to suspect maybe there's kind of some bitterness and kind of some anxiety behind this. You know, is this person sending me a, a veiled message uh, about how they really feel about me? You know, and... Uh, you never speak to them, but all of a sudden your whole world becomes turned upside down by the irrationality of what you read into this message. And what needs to happen? Well, you need to speak the truth about the relationship uh, into that situation, don't you? You need to say to yourself, I know this person. I've known them for 20 years. They don't send messages like that. They're, They're a tremendous friend to me. I must be misinterpreting reality. Uh, And if that's true of our relationships with people, then how much more true is that of our relationship with God? Our relationship with God is susceptible to tidal waves of irrationality as well. And we need to speak the truth again and again and again and again and again and again into our lives. We need to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel and of who God is and of his willingness to forgive, and of the fact that only, only through Christ can forgiveness come. We need to remind ourselves of that, especially because the devil is the father of lies, isn't he? And he keeps speaking lies about God and undermining God's word. Now, the sin offering reminds us not just of sin, but of the need to hear again and again the promise of forgiveness and the message about Jesus Christ. But there's one last thing that the sin offering teaches us. There's something that it teaches us about the mechanics of life, the mechanics of our relationship with God, the mechanics of our relationship with God as we live in this body. One of the requirements of the sin offering was that a person, when they became aware of their sin, had to bring a sin offering, bring it to the temple, confess their sin. And while we don't need to bring those offerings anymore, the New Testament teaches us that we still need to be people who regularly confess our sin to God. The Apostle John in one of his letters to the church wrote, if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Similarly, uh, Jesus' brother James wrote in, uh, in a letter to the church as well uh, that just as we pray for people who are sick because we want them to be healed, we ought to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another 
in spiritual matters. As we pray for each other in physical things, we ought to pray for each other in spiritual things as well. On the 31st of October in 1517, so that's a bit of a while ago, uh, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic monk, uh, nailed 95 complaints to the door of his local church. You might, have, uh, you might know about that. I wonder if you know what the first of those was. This is the first of Martin Luther's complaints, or if you, I guess if you like, statements. He says... When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. When Jesus said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. In the same way that the sin offering teaches us, uh, in the same way, sorry, uh, the sin offering teaches us that confession of specific sins ought to be a part of our daily life. You see, it's possible to believe the gospel. It's possible to tell people about the gospel but fail to use the gospel in everyday life. The gospel teaches us that our biggest problem is sin, that our biggest need is God's grace. The gospel teaches us that we receive that through humbling ourselves before the feet of Jesus at the foot of the cross and by trusting in God's mercy. If I was to ask you what is your biggest problem that you face in your life, I wonder what your answer would be. If I was to ask you what is the biggest problem that this church faces, what is the thing which is really holding us back? I wonder what your answer would be. When you complain uh, about people, uh, complain to people, I should say, about the church, not that you should do that, but when you do, what is it that you complain about? People always complain to me about churches. Uh, it happens all the time. Every Christian that I know, whenever, whenever I speak to them, they always complain about their church. And do you know what I always say to them? I always say to them, do you know what your biggest problem is? the biggest problem that your church faces is sin. And tearing down the pulpit and putting in a lectern isn't going to fix that. And neither is different Sunday school material uh, or more growth groups. Let me tell you the absolute truth about this church, about us, Our biggest problem is not our location, it's not our lack of giftedness, it's not our style of music, it's not the size of the car park. Our biggest problem is our sin, my sin uh, and your sin. Our biggest problem uh, is is my distractedness and and your distractedness uh, and my pride and your pride and my lovelessness and your lovelessness and my fear and your fear and my unbelief and your unbelief. That's, that's our biggest problem. So if you're new here this morning and you're a sinner, then welcome, welcome to our church because we need the gospel, we need Jesus as much as you do. 
See, it's one thing to believe theologically that sin is the biggest obstacle in our lives, but rarely, if ever, do we really operate like that. If we really believe that sin is the biggest obstacle to the church, then where is sin on the agenda of the AGM? Where is the confession of sin in our prayers that we pray individually and together? Now, here is the shocking reality that it's possible to believe the gospel, to tell people about the gospel, to call people to the gospel, but to never actually use the gospel and to live the gospel. You can have your church services, you can have your mission work, you can champion the cause of the poor, you can plant 100 churches and see 3,000 people saved. You can exhaust yourself praising God and preaching the gospel, but you know what? It's all worthless. It all is for nothing. Unless you not only believe the gospel, but you live out of it as well. The way, the thing that we need most of all is humility at the foot of the cross. That's what the sin offering teaches us. Don't misunderstand me. The message of the sin offering is not if you don't confess every single sin that you've ever committed, you won't be forgiven. That's not the message. The message of the sin offering is what what does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus, to believe the gospel? This is what it looks like. It looks like daily humility at the foot of the cross. It looks like daily trust in that theme of the sin offering and he will be forgiven. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we've got high ideals uh, and big dreams, big dreams for our own lives, big dreams for the life of this church. But Father, the truth is that our sins and our offences weigh us down. Father, the truth is that when we fail, uh, it's because our hearts are deceitful, it's because we make things to be greater than you, We love them more than you. Father, it's because we don't believe your words. We don't believe that you're powerful. We don't believe that we're sinful. We don't believe that Jesus' blood is sufficient. We don't believe that you're merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. How shall we then live? Father, help us to live out of the gospel. Father, please forgive us. Forgive us for our sinfulness. And help us to trust that you are willing to save us through Jesus Christ. Father, please change us as well and we ask that we would no longer live but that Christ would live in us, 
that it wouldn't be about us anymore but that it would be about living every day not on bread of this world but on the bread of life who is Jesus. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.